You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, so we're up to episode 87, and we're doing it with Dr. David Wiss. So before I introduce the topic, I'm just going to share a little bit about who David is, and then we'll jump into the whole controversy of it all. David is a registered dietitian nutritionist, and he has a group practice based in California. It's called Nutrition in Recovery, and they specialize in treating eating disorders and substance use disorders. He also has a PhD in public health with a minor in health psychology from UCLA. And part of what David's jam has been ever since college is investigating the links between adverse childhood experiences and mental health outcomes. So specifically in his early research, it was among socially disadvantaged men and the research has sort of expanded and his research has expanded into so, so much more. So David really has become the person who is drawing links between nutrition and relationship with food and mental health, adverse experiences, all of that stuff, putting it together. All right. So hold on to your hats. This is going to be a conversation. I'm specifically putting it in here, A, because I think it's really, really important. Obviously, I put all the episodes in here because I think that it's important. But I think this one is extra important because it is a conversation that no one is having. And it's possible that no one is having it because of the backlash that they'll have. I don't want to, you know, put myself in this position and say like, oh my gosh, I'm so amazing. Like I'm doing this conversation that no one else is having and I might get canceled for this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Okay. Let me get off my high horse. Obviously not. But I do think this conversation, the one about ultra-processed foods and how it potentially has an effect on the body in a way that the eating disorder community doesn't necessarily give enough attention to, is something that we just can't ignore. So I think part of what we're trying to do throughout the conversation is bring some facts and research, obviously, but also with how most people or a lot of people and basically everybody with disordered eating and an eating disorder might respond to some of this information. So a couple of things, and we'll reiterate this throughout the conversation. First of all, if you are listening and you have an active eating disorder and there are a lot of rules in your mind, it might be best to put this on pause until there are fewer rules in your mind. And I say that because Even if there is a percentage chance that one sentence in this entire interview might make your mind spiral, it's not worth it. It is not worth it to listen to, at least not yet. And I think that, you know, sort of prefacing this is to protect all of you to make sure that we stabilize your relationship with food before we add the nuance that this conversation is all about. Now, it's tricky because as an eating disorder clinician, 
I am not going to endorse the idea of demonizing foods or putting foods on a pedestal or saying some foods are better than others. And this food has this effect on your body and therefore you should eat it or shouldn't eat it. That very often is counterintuitive for somebody who is actively struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating. And I think what this conversation is trying to do is bring more information so that we don't shy away from the fact that some of that actually might be true. And I think when you talk to a lot of eating disorder professionals, it's very hard for a lot of people to acknowledge that there is the difference in some types of foods. And I don't think that's because they don't think that it's true. I think that they're trying to protect their clients and the clientele that they work with. And it's obviously the right thing to do. And I'm going to lump myself in there. But I also think that as a clinician and as somebody putting out information into the world for you to consume, (laughs) no pun intended, I think that it's really, really important that we put out accurate information. So David's going to talk a lot about the difference between unprocessed or minimally processed foods and processed foods and ultra-processed foods, what that means a lot about food addiction, which is definitely very different from the previous food addiction episode that we did, which by the way, I love, I agree with everything that Marcy said in the previous conversation. And if you haven't listened to it, by the way, it's a really, really, really incredible and important lesson on from Marcy Evans and food addiction. This is something to add on to that, to add more information, to add more nuance. And I hope, I really, really hope from the bottom of my heart that you listen to today's episode with an open mind and an open heart. And as always, if you agree with me, if your response is finally someone is saying something, let me know, email me, DM me something, let me know. And if this totally ticks you off and you are fuming, how can she say this? This is totally wrong. Or even if it's not wrong, how can she say this as an eating disorder professional? How can she have someone like this on her podcast? Well, just know, I want to know that too. And more importantly, I think other people want to know that. So whether it's responding to me privately or sharing this with a friend, I think this is the episode where coming on the other side of your disordered eating, if you have a history of it and you're not actively engaged in an eating disorder, if you're a professional or if you're a clinician treating eating disorders or really just any clinician, share this with your colleagues, share this with your friend, start the conversation. And if anything, let's just get angry. Just get angry. All right, guys, I hope you're still holding onto your hats because here we go. David and me. Thank you for coming on the show, David. I am very excited about this topic. I'm excited to chat with you, but I'm also really excited to talk about this. So thanks for coming on. You got it. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm also looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. So this is all tricky because I'll speak for myself. I know you also do, but I work in the eating disorder space and we're going to talk about how different foods potentially can affect the body in different ways. And A lot of eating disorder recovery is neutralizing that space because so many people have food rules. I can't eat this. I should eat this. I shouldn't eat that because of this, because of that. And there's so many calculations and there's so much rigidity that we don't want to add rigidity. So this is tricky to talk about with an audience who either struggles with their relationship with food or has a full-blown eating disorder. But I do think after... I don't know, 80 some odd episodes that we can't 
ignore this. I feel like a lot of people in the eating disorder world either ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist. So first tell me what's been your experience of this, because I'm sure you've gotten a lot of flack for this, and then we can circle back. Yeah. I also believe that the goal of eating disorder recovery is to move into neutrality and to reduce emotional charge. And one of the most straightforward paths to doing that is to normalize foods. Mm-hmm. And it's a big part of the work that I do. And it's been my experience that in the efforts to normalize foods, there has been a lot of really important research that has been ignored or discounted or even vehemently opposed, right? And, yeah. and I've always been interested in that. I've always been interested in dialectics, how opposing truths are happening at the same time and where do they converge? And I've always, as a scholar, as a someone that likes intellectual conversations, been wanting to have some of these conversations. And it, it has felt like this topic of foods, ultra-processed foods, makes people really uncomfortable. And yeah, that's why I was like, well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. That's what David says. It's uncomfortable for you. All right, I'm going in. I'm going in for this. (laughs) Let's go in. Yeah. So maybe a little bit of an asterisk here, because I know that we're talking that it's, it's tricky to talk about this in the eating disorder recovery world. But also for anybody listening who is actively struggling with an eating disorder, you know, definitely lots of the listenership, know where you're at, know how much more information you can take about specific foods. And if this is not going to be helpful, maybe come back to it later. Yeah. And I want to add that we have this term, the eating disorder world, right? And then it's like, we have this larger world. And one of the things that I've always been curious (laughs) about is like, are they opposites? Are they separate? Where do they intersect? What about the gray areas, right? So I'd like Mm -hmm. to talk about it today from a perspective of gray areas rather than black and white. Yeah. I mean, it does feel like to a certain extent when we talk about the eating disorder recovery world, it is its own bubble. So it's own bubble. And you can't, you either live in it or you don't live in it, but there is nothing outside the bubble that exists for the eating disorder recovery community. So you're right. There is a lot of gray area, but I guess the reason why I put the asterisk in is because, and I'm talking directly to you, the listener, you know where your mind is at. You know that if you scroll on Instagram and you see somebody saying, oh, this worked for me, and in your mind is translated, I have to do this or otherwise I'm a terrible person, that's so tricky for this conversation. We're having an open conversation about research and about different information, but if introducing some of these ideas is going to make your mind completely spiral, then perhaps we need to wait just a little bit. That's all I'm saying. I think I'm really good at talking about these things in ways that don't cause spiraling. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely agree with you. So maybe we should talk about why it's become so controversial and ultimately obscure, meaning the the research that we have about uh, what we call ultra-processed... You know what? Let me circle back. What is an ultra-processed food? What do you mean when you say that? Yes. So that term has been used pretty freely, and there's other terms, highly processed foods, highly palatable foods. In the literature, people have used different terminology but we do have very clear definitions based on the NOVA classification, which has really put in some excellent effort to classify foods into four categories, right? The unprocessed and minimally processed foods, right? When you think about 
a banana or an almond, right? And then we have processed culinary ingredients when you start thinking about a piece of bread or mayonnaise, right? And then we have processed foods, which are generally a combination of unprocessed foods and processed culinary ingredients. If you were to think about a sandwich, right? There's like mm. vegetables on there, there's meat, but there's also the bread and the mayonnaise, right? And then we have the fourth category, which is called ultra processed foods, which are mainly just processed culinary ingredients. So it doesn't actually contain any real or minimally processed foods. And this is what you see when you think about a snack cake or a chip. All of the food was made in an industrial fashion, you know, usually in some kind of large scale for-profit setting. And the controversy around it is so rich because there's so many questions about you know, ultra-processed food. Is it the ingredients themselves that are causing inflammation or causing insulin responses with blood sugar spikes? Or is it the actual agricultural practices, the industrial practices that are used that make some of these foods land on the body a little bit differently, right? What would be an example of that? The agricultural or what would you say, fancy? The industrial processes, right? Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. so like if you were to think about what do people uh, get concerned about the most, right? Like in certain communities, there's a lot of concern about refined sugar and Mm -hmm. white flour, right? Those seem to be the things that people have the most kind of bones to pick with, right? They have like devil Um, ears. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you think about the journey from a wheat plant, like to becoming white flour and then to becoming like a a snack cake that you could get from a vending machine, right? There's a lot of steps. Like we're talking about a lot of steps, right? From the refining of the grain to the removing of the fiber, the removing of basically everything except for the starch. A lot of the nutrients are lost. So B vitamins, the, the germ is lost, the fibers are lost. A lot of the minerals that are in the actual plant themselves are lost. So there's laws that require for nutrients that were lost during processing to be added back in, in a supplemental form. It's been shown that if communities or populations or groups eat refined grains uh, as opposed to whole grains, that they can run into nutritional deficiencies. So -hmm. there are laws, for example, here in the United States, if you ever looked at that, the ingredient list of breads, it says enriched, right? So they've actually Mm -hmm. had to add in uh, nutrition that was lost during processing. Right. Um, so that's like the beginning part of the, you know, processing step, but then, you know, there's going to be more in terms of using that ingredient to make the actual end product. Right. So the combining of it with certain types of industrial oils, other ingredients and how that, how it's cooked in like a a large setting and the temperatures and, you know, the storage and the plastic. And there's so many things that can contribute to what people would perceive as negative, right? Whether it be the loss of nutrients, the stripping of the fiber, the increased uh, glycemic response, uh, the types of oils that were used, 
the way that it was packaged, stored, there's a lot of room for a scientist, a nutritional scientist, or a person that is very concerned about food to have concerns, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And people are concerned. People have concerns. And I think in the eating disorder world, we've spent a lot of time invalidating people's concerns uh, for really good reason, right? That sometimes people's concerns create significant impairment and distress and are the root of a mental health challenge. Maybe not the root, but they are a symptom, right? And it's active, right? So I've spent a lot of my time kind of pushing back on people's concerns, uh, trying to move them into uh, inclusion and, and being able to eat these foods. But it doesn't mean that those concerns don't exist elsewhere and don't have some validity. That's where it gets tricky. It's like, you're not wrong about those concerns, but how is that concern helping you in your day-to-day life? Right. Right? In fact, perhaps not. Perhaps (laughs) not, right? Yeah. But it doesn't mean that those concerns don't exist in other think tanks, in other research articles, in other parts of the world where they do this type of work. Right. That's a really good point. So even just moving into the controversy of it, it has become obviously controversial, but also obscure that we don't even know what is true and what isn't true. So maybe you can talk for a second a bit too, like why it's become so obscure. Mm -hmm. How come we don't have actual information? Maybe sprinkle in people's personal interest here. Mm, We always love that. I got you. Well, I will say this right off the bat. We actually do have a lot of information in the last few years. And that's, I think, why I'm comfortable having this conversation. In Brazil, they've done research on ultra-processed foods and mental health in the last few years, and the papers are mounting rapidly, right? You are seeing a lot of evidence on ultra-processed foods and adverse mental health conditions such as depression, anxiety, dementia, So it's not like this conversation doesn't have scientific validity. I think when you talk about ultra-processed foods and then it's linked to weight loss and fitness, it feels like diet culture. But Mm -hmm. when you're talking about ultra-processed foods and mental health, that's a different conversation, especially for those of us that work in the eating disorder space, for listeners that have any history of disordered eating, we're actually talking about mental health. We're not talking about fitness, right? We're talking right. about sanity, not vanity, right? Um, but to answer your question, um, there's been a lot of uncovering of foul play by the food industry in the last few decades, right? There's been some investigative journalists that have written books exposing tactics by uh, food companies to obscure information, to point the finger I think the best example is the demonization of cholesterol and saturated fat that occurred and really got widespread in the 80s when I was growing up. Everything said cholesterol-free, fat-free, and like this was a really clear effort to point the finger at fat. And it actually has been revealed through internal documents that this was PR work done by the sugar industry who wanted to exonerate themselves from public health concerns and make it seem like fat was the problem. And if you think about the language we use, if, if if you ever use like the term greasy or oily, it has a very negative connotation, but mm-hmm. sweet, hey, honey, those are very mm-hmm. in terms of endearment, right? So there has been 
documented efforts by large-scale multinational billion-dollar corporations to influence the public discourse around food, right? And they're actually able to do that through funding research, finding scientists Mm -hmm. that match their agenda, funding research to show things that essentially promote their bottom line, right? It's also been discovered that food companies have used high-tech laboratories to test the neurochemical response to foods. So I got interested in the concept of food addiction, ultra-processed food addiction, when I learned that these companies were engineering food to maximize profit, right? There was a book written, yes. Michael Moss wrote a book called Salt, Sugar, Fat. Interesting book. It really just talked about the tactics of the food industry. And as someone that like, I just have an antenna, maybe it's my lived experiences, but when when I get a sense that someone's on the take and someone's trying to get over, like it bothers me more than it does the average person. You know? <laughs> yeah. It does. I don't know if, if it's part of who I am or what, or what, but like when I feel like someone is deceiving someone else for the sake of their own personal gain, it does activate me. And that's why like, I started reading those books. I'm like, wait, I, want, I need to know this. I don't know that yeah. I'm going to like get behind it or if it's going to influence my clinical practice, but I feel like I need to know this information because I'm a truth seeker. So one more piece about your question. When I was trained as a registered dietitian, I went through the classic master's program, the dietetic internship, and I went to the national conferences and I received ongoing education and webinars as part of my training through the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. I think at the time it was called the American Dietetic Association, right? That's how far back it goes. Anyways, when I was a student, there were uh, webinars that came into our classrooms about GMOs that were from Monsanto. There were webinars about salt from Frito-Lay's. There was webinars about the safety of high fructose corn syrup from the Corn Refiners Association. And it felt very obvious to me that the training that I was receiving was very much to support the financial interests of the food industry rather than to actually support public health. And no one else in my class seemed to care. I was like, wait a minute, are you guys picking up on the fact that we are being trained to carry out the agenda of someone else, these big national corporations. Does that, I was like, does that bother anyone? (laughs) Everyone's like, no, it doesn't matter. And the conferences I went to, the conferences, all the talks were sponsored by food companies. It wasn't like real science. It wasn't like, oh, this is objective science. People that are doing the pursuit of truth. It really was, this is... And again, nutrition research is difficult to fund. There isn't a lot of funding and the industry funds a lot of it. I'm not saying that any industry funded research is no good, right? It's not the case, but there's been a lot of efforts to essentially control the narrative around food to make it seem like food is, I think the best way to summarize it is that like, there's nothing wrong with any of the food. It's on you people. Like if you want to make a change, like do it right? Like you want Mm -hmm. help. We're going to show you how to count calories. You want to eat less calories. We're going to give you diet Coke. It had this message of we're putting it on you, the people to make decisions. And we're going to keep our efforts behind the scenes and behind the scenes. They were doing research on 
food addiction and to yeah. see how they can make their food more palatable, hence more profitable, and to generate more revenue for the company and for their shareholders, which is essentially capitalism. So I think the yeah. real crux of the issue, we're not really talking about food when we talk about food companies and ultra-processed food addiction. We are talking about the system, the economic system that we live in, in the US. And I've always said, like, if you want to know the truth, like, just follow the money. Mm -hmm. And that has always felt like meaningful work. My PhD is in public health. I have a responsibility to look out for public health, right? And yep. when private profits supersede public health, it bothers me. And nutrition and food is one example of how this dynamic has gotten really, really tricky. Yeah. Well, I think also part of what you're emphasizing here is some of the goal of our conversation today is to remove the onus from the individual. There's obviously, okay, so what do we do about this? And we'll address that towards the end. But for anybody to remember that a lot of what we're doing is perhaps uncovering truths, maybe big truths, but that's beyond anybody's control as an individual living in this system. So just sort of like putting this out there, this is not about you. You don't have a problem. This is something that has been almost manufactured. That's right. I hope that's not too depressing for people to hear. <laughs> it is depressing, but yeah. So let's move into some of what you have noticed to be true in terms of neurobiology and actual science, the food reward systems and any of the addiction information that you've uncovered. I don't know if that's too much to unpack there, but... Yeah, I think we can go there. But before we do, let's honor the voice of the eating disorder recovery community first, which is that a lot of this information about food addiction or what I'm now calling ultra-processed food addiction has been unclear because a lot of food addiction symptoms are driven by dietary restraint, by weight suppression, by efforts to control eating. So there's a lot of people out there that think they have a food addiction, but they really have a restrictive eating disorder right? Yep. And that's yep. why this conversation is so difficult to have. There's a lot of people now that are providing uh, information, online education about food addiction, and it attracts people that don't actually have a food addiction. They just perceive that they have a food addiction because of maybe body dissatisfaction, long-term dieting, right? And so uh, before we talk about the neurobiology of it, I want to just emphasize that there is a difference between a true positive for food addiction and a false positive that's often driven by some sort of cognitive effort to eat less, lose weight, or what we're now calling orthorexia nervosa, right? And so I think what you said earlier in our conversation was like, if, if the listener is out there and only you could know, maybe your clinician could know, right? Maybe your dietitian will know, but like only you know if the description of the neurobiological response, and maybe you don't know, I'll say that. Maybe it's really yeah. hard to separate the signal from the noise, but I think it requires some soul searching to know, like, does the concept of food addiction appeal to people because it really is the crux of the problem, or does it seem like this food addiction construct 
can be appealing because it can solve this other problem about, you know, noise around food and body. And so that's where it gets really, really tricky. And I've actually written some papers about it and maybe we can link it in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, One of my papers is called separating the signal from the noise, uh, how psychiatric diagnoses can help discern food addiction from dietary restraint. And I, I really wrote that paper in response to the voices from the eating disorder community that were saying the food addiction scale doesn't account for dieting, right? That dieting right. drives a lot of these symptoms, right? I'm saying, yes, that is true. There's a lot of people that have food addiction symptoms that are a relic of excessive dietary restraint. And there's also people that have food addiction symptoms that have never been on a diet right? That's where the conversation gets really, really tricky. So it can't be that someone's either a a real positive, what I call a true positive or a false positive, that there's a continuum, that food addiction Mm -hmm. symptoms exist on a spectrum and that different people might have very mild addiction-like eating is another term we use. So food addiction has just a lot of, you know, some people attach stigma to it. I don't. Um, I also call it reward-based eating. That there Mm. are people that actually fall more on an eating disorder continuum, but have some degree of addiction-like eating in there. Mm -hmm. And and, and again, there's people that have, you know, food addiction symptoms that have really mild symptoms of disordered eating, right? That they're they're separate and distinct, but they cluster and co-occur. And people are having a really difficult time figuring out how to discern them, how to differentiate from them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been my work. So I want to come out and say that up front. I'm not interested in looking at food addiction as like this totally separate and distinct entity from eating disorders and cleaving them and separating them. I'm interested in when they when they intersect. How do we talk to clients about that? How do we talk to clinicians about that, right? Yeah. So when we talk about somebody who say has no history of any form of disordered eating and yet they display symptoms of either reward-based eating or food addiction, what's that from? We're talking about like 20% of the population right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and again, like, is it clinically significant for all of them? Maybe not right? Maybe not. But if you think about like the risk factors for addiction, like eating, okay, we've got genetic vulnerability, right? So for example, Mm. we know that if someone has a parent that has a history of alcohol use disorder or some other addiction, we know that their offspring is more likely to have susceptibility to addictions, whether it be alcohol, drugs, caffeine, nicotine, ultra processed foods, like that's a no brainer. Okay. But we also know that genetics by themselves are not sufficient to create this issue. We need the environmental stressors. Uh, Some of the work that I've done has been looking at stress, trauma, and adversity as uh, additional risk factors for addictions, including addiction-like eating. And not just thinking of them conceptually or from a purely psychological standpoint, but actually looking at how adversity gets under the skin, how it can be biologically embedded, right? So Mm -hmm. I've done work on adverse childhood experiences and how that affects BMI over the lifespan and actually looking at what are the mechanisms, right? How does adversity set up inflammatory cascades? 
How does it change the brain? How does it make mm-hmm. someone more susceptible to uh, substance-related behavior with the goal, whether it be conscious or subconscious, of reducing negative affect, right? And so we've got, you know, the genetic predisposition, we've got the early life environment, the ongoing cumulative stressors, and then, of course, we have the exposure, right? The actual ongoing exposure. If someone grows up in a small town where there aren't like a lot of grocery stores, there's convenience stores and there's diners and there's restaurants and there's some fast food spots and they've grown up their entire life eating mostly ultra processed food, right? Those exposures have taught the brain what food should taste like. Mm -hmm. And the consequence of it, in my opinion, isn't so much that, yeah, that food itself is the cause of the health woes and the declining mental health. But if someone's eating those foods, they're also likely not eating a lot of other foods that we know are health promoting, right? So I've sort of made the argument that one of the real consequences of quote unquote food addiction or ultra processed food addiction is that the person is less likely to want to eat lentils, broccoli, raspberries, and things that we know have health benefits, right? So, So to answer your question in the most Simple way. I don't want to get too lost in the neurobiology. The way that I've remembered it the easiest, okay, and the way that I try to teach people is through the concept of salience. Salience is when the brain assigns more value to an experience to make it more memorable, right? So there's a a part of the brain called the ventral striatum, which is where a lot of the reward-based behavior uh, is registered. Um, It it definitely talks to the amygdala and the hippocampus. Hippocampus is largely responsible for the memory. So if someone has grown up in an adverse environment and they learned early on that a bunch of snacks at 10 o'clock before bed made some of the negative emotionality go away, the brain is going to learn how to assign more value to that substance in order to make it more memorable so that the person could do it again when in need, right? Mm -hmm. And again, for our listeners, I might not be talking about someone with a classically distinct restrictive eating disorder. We're going off into some other constructs right now. I'm not saying they're, they're totally different, but when we think about addiction, neurobiology, what we're really talking about is the brain overlearning the experience of a substance and doing so in a way that will stimulate the repeating of that behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious that if someone grew up with a lot of challenges and learned pretty early on that food makes those challenges go away in the very short term, we call it the self-medication hypothesis, right? That that person could actually uh, experience a heightened level of reward to those foods because the brain has moved it higher up on the list. It has more salience to that person, okay? So are you saying, just to interrupt you, that insert any food over there that would sort of put that food on a pedestal in this person's mind? You know, there are people in the food addiction community that talk about excessive consumption of like fruits and nuts and whole grains. But I think that's a very rare case. And I don't necessarily get behind that or support that. And the the research that we have shows that it's the ultra processed foods that are 
uh, quote unquote addictive for some people. Okay. So just to clarify, if say a person is put in the situation where their brain has attributed a lot more uh, weight, for lack of a better term, to this particular food, it doesn't happen outside of the group of ultra processed foods. So together there's this type of food and then this type of experience with the food and put it together. And then you have this explosion. Yeah. And there's definitely been some efforts to try to figure out like, you know, what is the addictive ingredient? Like if you think about, (laughs) you know, like with cigarettes in order for us in public health to like make laws to regulate the use of tobacco and cigarettes, like you had, you had to identify that it's the nicotine that's addictive. Right. And the same thing is true with alcoholic beverages. Like it's very clear that it's the ethanol in there, right? So you're able to make a much stronger case, right? Of course, most people have made the argument that with the ultra-processed foods, it's the sugar, right? The added refined sugars, but uh, that's not always the case. You, You know, as a dietitian that's worked with eating disorders and a wide range of people in the functional medicine world for now over 10 years, you do get people that prefer more savory, salty, fatty food experiences. So it, it it's tricky. And that's one of the arguments against the ultra processed food addiction construct is that you can't identify the single agent. Most people would say it is a combination of some sort of sugar, starch, fat, salt, right? That makes the food that rewarding. If you were to think about, if you put out like a bowl of flour, a bowl of sugar, a bowl of butter, right? Like, and you offered it to someone, most people wouldn't want to eat any of it. But if you put it all together and you baked it right into a cookie, a cookie is delicious, right? So yes, it's tricky to identify like, what is the thing? But the research that we have shows that it is usually a combination of refined sugars and some sorts of fats that make foods what we call highly palatable and like extremely rewarding to the point, and I'll come back to the addiction thing. The best way to understand the neurochemistry of it is through salience, right? Mm -hmm. The registration of reward and the memory of it to repeat the behavior. And we have 11 criteria for substance use disorder. and, And that's where the food addiction construct came from. Originally the Yale food addiction scale used the DSM four criteria, which looked at abuse and dependence. Now in the DSM-5, we have 11 criteria for substance use disorder. There's been like over a thousand studies on this, right? This isn't like some fringy thing that's like on the scene. We're talking about since 2007, uh, like like there's probably over 3000 papers published on on this topic. The criteria that I like to uh, remind people about or to remember myself when thinking about addiction like eating Like, obviously, when people think about addiction, you think about like the development of tolerance, you need more of it. Withdrawal, like when you don't have it, things get emotionally difficult. But the one that really sold me on the food addiction concept, and I was skeptical at first, especially as a student, as a dietetic student and intern, I was skeptical of this stuff. But the one that really convinced me is the continued use despite negative consequences. Mm. Right, That's the one that makes it very obvious to me that someone could have significant health challenges, type 2 diabetes, 
my famous story is when I was a dietetic intern, I was shadowing an outpatient. There was a man who was older and he had advanced type two diabetes and he ate at diners and he had microwave dinners and he never cooked for himself. He just had fast food. And the message that came across from his doctors and from the dietitian that I was sitting with was, if you can't change your eating, we have to amputate your leg. And I remember him, he kind of looked, you know, at her and he was like, he didn't really seem convinced that he could change his eating. And like, you know, lo and behold, right? Like his diabetes got so advanced that like he had to lose his leg from the diabetes. And I just remember staying up awake at night and thinking like, I can't fathom the possibility that that's what he wanted for himself. Like it, yeah. it couldn't be true that this person. And so that's when I was like, what if the food that he's eaten over the course of his life has taught his brain what food should taste like and that no other food would be deemed acceptable and that that food was being registered by his brain as survival promoting, even though it was killing him. And I was like, that's addiction. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to create the distinction because I do think that there are a lot of people that say because it isn't the same as, say, cocaine or something, the properties, even if you could identify one particular ingredient, there isn't withdrawal in the same way. So we can't call it an addiction. Let's be honest, even if we didn't call it addiction, it doesn't mean that this doesn't exist. So I think the distinction here in terms of semantics is very important. I wanted to go back to something that you said before. I don't know if we have enough time to expand on this too much, but in terms of this particular patient who had this relationship with food, especially ultra-processed foods, there's something that links his eating to his diabetes. And I think that's also something that in the eating disorder community has been something that a lot of people have tried to disconnect. Your eating doesn't cause diabetes. So end of story. Is there research to say maybe there is or what happens with food? Is there anything that has to do with metabolic dysfunction or insulin resistance? Tons of research. And I do believe that, you know, in the eating disorder community, we do have to come up with narratives to protect people that are highly restrictive in their eating because restrictive eating disorders are life-threatening and they're very dangerous. And it does seem like in order to protect people from going down the road of orthorexia, nervosa, being afraid to touch refined grains, we do have to teach them another way. And that other way is generally the polar opposite of other messaging that exists in the world. So it's almost like uh, one extreme is being matched by another extreme. If right. someone actually made the statement, and just is just to follow up on your question, that the food we eat has nothing to do with diabetes, I think that most of the scientists in the world would roll our eyes, right? Like that's absurd, right? It's very obvious that high glycemic carbohydrates and low fiber carbohydrates are positive agents in type two diabetes, sugar sweetened beverages, et cetera. Where does that information intersect with someone that doesn't have diabetes that just is like super anti drinking a sugar sweetened beverages? Like that's the tricky conundrum of the nutrition space that requires nuance, right? It's like, you know, you can't you can't pick 
one truth and say, this is the truth that I stand. I am this, and this is the truth that I, uh, uh, this is the flag that I stick in the ground. It's not scientific. We have to always honor that there are multiple truths going on at the same time, right? Um, yeah. And it's tricky for people. What would be an example of how any form of ultra-processed foods might affect somebody's metabolic functioning or insulin resistance or anything that might come up with health concerns later? Yeah, there's a lot of mechanisms. You know, when I think about like the biology of food and eating behavior, I always think about gut and gut microbiota. I think about hormones, things like insulin and leptin. And then I think about the neurochemistry, the reward, and they're all related, right? So if you think about like food that lands first, we know that um, uh, certain types of foods can be pro-inflammatory at the level of the gut, right? Like it's true. It's, it's not even up for debate. We know that foods that are higher in fiber and higher in polyphenols promote the growth of beneficial bacteria, right? So like there's a big difference between eating a meal that's got a lot of different food groups and has colors in it and has fibers in it and has protein in it uh, and it has something that someone would call in a, like an ultra-processed food versus a meal that was purely ultra processed foods, right? So it's like, you know, you can't just think about risk when you think about food. You have to think about like protection. Like what are the components that provide protection? Um, and this is how we can keep it food positive as opposed to like a lot of this conversation around ultra processed food and food addiction ends up feeling very negative. You're pointing to mm -hmm. the foods that you should not eat, right? right? And as someone that has, you know, talked this through with so many people, there's a way to honor the science, but also make it feel inclusive and food positive and help people understand that it's about the food that you should eat, not the food that you shouldn't eat. That's the cognitive trap of disordered eating. People are so focused on what to avoid that they lose sight of like, you know, what to include, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so when you think about gut health, right, it's pretty obvious that if someone ate purely ultra processed foods, they would have a negative gut environment. Can't deny it. The science tells us unequivocally so, right? But if someone ate like a good balance between what would be considered unprocessed or minimally processed foods and some other processed foods and ultra processed foods, the gut could do fine because it's getting its needs met. And then you add some stuff on top of that. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that's an important nuance. The hormonal response to food is super important. We know that when the fiber is stripped of foods, the, um, the blood sugar response is heightened we know that the hormone insulin responds to blood sugar and it actually communicates uh, with some of the reward regions in the brain and that like higher levels of insulin can associate with higher uh, dopaminergic responses and more addiction-like behaviors. And then coming back to the brain, we know that food that's more palatable is more rewarding, as we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. more salience is is assigned and it's tricky because it's so tricky you know just to give you one more like need for nuance right like there's a lot of people that have addiction like eating symptoms because they're so restrictive 
But there's also people, this is the, the forgotten group. There's people that are restrictive because they have addiction-like responses to food. You get it? It's like, no, they, say this again. Yes. Okay. So I'll start from the beginning. There are people that have food addiction symptoms because of their inherent restriction around food. They're okay. not inclusive. They're subscribing to diet culture energy, trying to lose weight, whatever is driving them. And it plays out with food addiction symptoms. But there's also people that come from a genetic legacy of addiction and alcohol in their family that had early life adversity that are primed for addictions. And when they eat certain ultra-processed food, it overactivates the reward pathways and it makes them very uncomfortable. And that's why they're restrictive. So it's a bi-directional pathway. So the restriction drives the food addiction, but the food addiction also can drive the restriction. And that's the part that the eating disorder community does not want to acknowledge, that there are some people that start to become avoidant of food and develop eating disorder symptoms because the food that they eat is just so potent and it makes them anxious. It's overstimulating. It overactivates the brain. They can't think about anything else, right? So that's just pointing to the need for nuance in this conversation, right? And maybe some of the listeners are going to say, oh yeah, that's me. Mm. I should, <laughs> I should. That's me. I should be able to restrict. And that's not uh, uh, what I'm saying or what we're saying. But we need to think about these dynamics as complex, bi-directional uh, signal flow, as opposed to like having one single model. That's my biggest criticism of yeah. the eating disorder community. And I'm a part of it. I've always said there, there's only, it seems to be like there's only one model here that mm -hmm. dietary restraint drives binge eating. You know what I mean? But like, what about other models? What about uh, growing up in a food environment that is not diverse? What if someone grows up in, tr in a traumatic household with food insecurity and they only eat fast food, right? Like, you know, that could also drive binge eating in the absence of dietary restraint. There's other models. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so just in the interest of time, and I know that this is probably not enough time to talk about this question, but even just a couple of snippets, given everything that we've spoken about, and given that this is completely outside of the control of an individual, what is someone meant to do? Hmm. Like, okay, so, now what? <laughs> I've done a lot of talking with my eating disorder colleagues recently. And I think the the main point that I'm trying to make is that um, you don't have to change like the treatment. We're not talking about like putting someone into substance use disorder treatment and having abstinence-based models. Everything that we're doing in the eating disorder world is fantastic and we've come a long way, but to honor the concept of ultra-processed food, all we have to do is just validate people. As mm -hmm. opposed to telling them that they have that they're that they're wrong and that they have something that doesn't exist to tell someone like, yeah, there's science to support that. Uh, but let's talk about how that might work in your day to day life. Right. And maybe yeah. trying too hard to avoid these foods is going to be more problematic, more harmful than helpful. If it felt right for someone to uh, like find their own personal sweet spot with how much inclusivity they should have around food, they should never be told that by their clinician or by their provider 
that them not wanting to eat a piece of cake is their eating disorder. It's not always someone's eating disorder. Sometimes it is. Sometimes someone not wanting to eat a piece of cake is a restrictive eating disorder. It is a risk factor for bulimia symptoms and they should eat the cake. But there are times when someone not eating the cake can actually be a recovery supporting endeavor. And I know mm-hmm. that there's people listening and say, nope, you have to eat the cake in order to be fully recovered. And I am I'm aware of that perspective. But the other argument that I've made that I continue to make, and this is my public health background, is that if we can get some intervention at the public health level, public policy, uh, food policy, I believe, I believe that if there were some rules around um, limiting ultra-processed foods, that it would significantly reduce diet culture and would significantly reduce eating disorder incidence and prevalence. I do. Hmm. So maybe go back to where we started hundreds yeah. of years ago. And hmm. I also think that the the like the thirty percent of people that have ongoing failure in temporary eating disorder treatment, the ongoing just relapse and been through twenty treatment centers. I think that a small percentage of those people, maybe a large percentage, have food addiction phenotype that's being ignored by the current treatment models. Interesting. I have so many more questions. Let's put a pin in it and perhaps we'll circle back another day. Let's do that. Okay. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you and your work? Yes. My uh, clinical practice is called Nutrition and Recovery. It's nutritioninrecovery.com. Um, I do one-on-one work uh, in person and virtually all over the world. I have a small team of other dietitians that works alongside with me. And I built an app. It's called Wise Mind Nutrition. It's wisemindnutrition.com. And it is designed to help improve mental health symptoms uh, using nutrition and lifestyle medicine. So it is designed to provide educational videos, assignments, cooking lessons, meditations to help improve depression, anxiety, trauma, ADHD, eating disorder, substance use disorder, food addiction, and really help people with sleep, relational health, and overall quality of life. Uh, It has a food log in it, better than recovery record, and it has videos in it. There's a free version of the app. So you could come in and log your food and learn the framework, get some tips about eating food for mood and brain health, and watch some videos and see if you like the energy. It's a very food positive inclusive message. It's eating disorder informed, which means that like the the language is is not triggering. It is truly designed to help people be their own individual agents. There's no agenda. There isn't a food philosophy that I'm trying to push. It really is about empowering people to be independent thinkers, to think at the intersection, what we call the wise mind, and to experience food and body freedom and to stand tall in their own brand of dignity and look the world in the eye. They're the first of its kind. It's the first of its kind. It really, really is. Uh, it brings awesome. together wisdom from different domains. And those efforts took uh, a lot of time and a lot of energy so that I would feel like a safe place, trauma-informed messaging, but also mm-hmm. allow people to be deliberate and intentional about their food. And if they want to find something that's true for them and honor that, that they'll be encouraged to do so. Yeah. So that's wise mind nutrition. Yep. Not Wismind Nutrition. That's right. your name. <laughs> That's my name. And there's a website with tons of information and the app should be readily available on all platforms. We're actually launching in a week or two. Awesome. I'm excited to share that one. All right. Well, thanks again for joining. 